Hello, everyone. I'm joined today by Phineas Harper, who is director of Open City. And you are fairly new to the job. And so could you set out exactly where you've been, how your sort of careers panned out over the last few years, and what's taken you from architecture into where you are now? So for anyone who doesn't know what Open City and Open House actually do, can you just explain a little bit what the whole sort of premise of it is and how it operates? Like that, you know, a 
alongside running these, these huge festivals, we, we, we have a year-round program of much smaller events, like tours, cycling tours, published books. We do a lot of education projects, particularly um, education work trying to bring design and architecture into schools um, in kind of deprived areas or where people from underrepresented backgrounds are. Um, uh, and I guess I, I think that's it. I think in the future we, we, we want to be um, we want to be doing more advocacy policy work sort of almost opening kind of think tank wing because I guess my frustration with Open House is that it's massive. Like in London alone, you're talking about 250,000 people in a single weekend going around 800 buildings. Um, internationally, once you wrap in all 46 all particular sister organisations, you're talking about 2 million visits taking place in a year to, to, to buildings. Um, it is the, the, the sort of scale of it is slightly mind boggling, but maybe what we haven't done in the past that we should do is um, uh, leverage that platform as much as, you know, that are all those visits turning into meaningful and challenging conversations about the future of the city or, or how built environment is procured and made and changed and for whom and why do. Um, sometimes, yeah, absolutely, but uh, I think a lot of the time um, we, we, we focus on just sort of getting people into these buildings, but we don't always think about the quality or the, or the kind of rigorousness of the the conversations that they have when they're there. Mm. So uh, we've, we've maybe focused on quantity <laughs> rather than quality. So it is very big, but maybe the challenge is like to have big conversations as well as just being big. Yeah, I was interested you mentioned the um, sort of the engagement of the public, the general public with architecture, because it's, I think, your open city and open house are one of the sort of only organizations that really engages with the actual public rather than the profession and just general interest groups. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the most fascinating things for me is seeing, and I'm sure you've got more insight into the data on this, is seeing which buildings the public want to go to the most, which are the most oversubscribed, where are the big queues, like I think it was Battersea Power Station had a massive queue outside of it and all these different ones. And I suppose that gives you almost a direct feedback into which buildings the public care about the most, or are the most interested in, at least, enough to go and actually see them? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it varies a lot, I and mean, I think there are some surprises that I'm very new, so I don't know, you know exactly what the landscape is, but like, I think it's very hard to have good, good conversations about architecture with a general audience. Um, I struggled to do that when I was at the Architecture Foundation, I struggled to do that when I was directing the Architecture in LA. Um, as people who study architecture, we come with a lot of baggage, we come with a lot of references, we come with like a, a vocabulary um, which is not always the most accessible to a broad audience. Um, what Open House does very well is to bring in lots of normal people who don't necessarily have any expertise at all but who have an interest in the Gherkin. They've seen it on the skyline every day for uh, you know, the last 10 years or whatever. Or, um, Battersea Power Station, because they, you know, they get on a bit and they remember it when it was just a sort of derelict thing in the middle of nowhere, and now they're seeing it turn into the centre of new, um, new development. Uh, and it, it, 
in a sense, the, the buildings that are popular are the, are the buildings you would expect, right? They're the, they're the, the iconic, the glitzy, the glamorous, the, the ones that make it into the news. Um, that's fine, but the challenge is, how do you take someone further? Like maybe they've come to open house just because they've always fancied getting inside the cheese grater. Um, you could, we as curators could just leave it there, right? Maybe our job is just to like enable people to access some spaces that they've always wanted to get into but never been able to. That's fine. That's a good thing in itself. But I think the bigger question is if, if someone is traveling across the country, potentially the world, to come and see these buildings at one time, um, you've got a unique opportunity to have a conversation with them about a bigger idea of urbanism or the future of the city. And um, those are the kind of conversations that I want to try and be having with people at Open House in the future. Mm. Now, how do you think you're going to be able to do that? Is there sort of a way of engaging visitors to buildings in conversations via apps or via while we're there and, and and also is that the kind of thing that people will engage with or are, are they like you say literally there because they want to see inside some building that they can't normally get into <laughs> um, well you should go sneaky haven't you right it's, it's sort of um, this, this is the trick of any, any kind of curation is uh, to have something amazing for somebody on whatever level they are prepared to engage with it um, so best art works at a very, very surface, shallow, you know, you know nothing about the context, you know nothing about the, um, the artist, and it still moves you in some way. But then it has many, many more layers, and the deeper you, the, the deeper you dig, the, the more you will get from that art. So if you, if you think about um, a really great film, right, um, it could be like a matrix. Can just watch it as a, a, a great thriller, and you like the special effects, and you know, generally it's hot or whatever. Like, it, it, it works at that very sort of surface level, or it kind of gives you loads of kind of complex metaphysical sort of Descartesian ideas of like how do I know I exist and you know what is reality anyway, and um, it kind of keeps going as far as you want. I think the same is true of fine art. If you walk into a room with a Monet painting, it knocks you off your feet. You don't have to know who Monet was. You don't need to know about the process. You don't need to know about like the context in which Monet was painting um, or how he like approached the canvas or whatever. Uh, it's still not your duty. But if you do want to do digging and like do some research, there's a whole other um, there's a really deep pool of knowledge there as well that will reveal so much more. And I mean, architecture is exactly the same. But, like the best architect. Um, takes a breath away without ne you needing to be an expert in it. Um, but the more you study it, the more you can get from it. And so I guess our job is to help people to go like, one step deeper at whatever stage of their journey into this crazy sort of economic, artistic, social art they're at. Should we take a pause? <laughs> <laughs> so unpausing. Uh, what were we talking about? Um, I was talking about going deeper in the engagement on the level of buildings. It yeah. Doesn't matter what level someone comes to something. Our job is to 
I guess in that you're relying on the buildings that they're visiting having additional levels of depth and not being shallow expressions of architectural <laughs> architectural creation. Yeah, but like one of the weird things about buildings is that even a very modest piece of architecture, even like a rear extension, has a lot of thinking that goes into it. Like there's the, the whole aesthetic conversation, there's the whole economic conversation, there's like material choices. Um, you, you can see uh, an entire theory uh, or an entire kind of approach to make, making buildings in a very small piece of um, architecture. So I, I think that there's always there's always a deeper step to go, even if the building isn't necessarily you know uh, one of the best buildings in the world. In terms of sort of the feedback mechanism for of people's thoughts and opinions for those ones who do want to engage deeper, like how how do you envision that working? Like how how do we get that conversation between like people in the world of architecture, like us, and general members of the public who are the ones who have to use these buildings and engage with them on a day to day level, and the, and therefore probably will visit the buildings? How do you create that sort of feedback loop? Well, there is this addiction that I think gets ingrained in you in, in architecture school that you have to have slides. And if you don't have slides and you've got nothing to say and therefore all that people want to do is look at the slides of your great buildings that you've been working on in the last 10 years. <laughs> in architecture lectures, which is odd because often these people are actually quite charismatic. Mm. Like you go for a dinner with them afterwards, or you go, and you know they, they, they're like much more effusive, much more lyrical. Um, well, there you go. Organise some talks where you ban slides completely or restrict it to ten slides yeah, in an hour or something. Future <laughs> uh, was a successful format. It was just like it introduced a kind of gimmick that forced people to use slides. I don't want to fixate on slides in particular, but uh, the broader point is that we are poor communicators. And um, I think there's a huge amount of work to be done on, on the part of the architecture industry to like upskill ourselves. And that's something that Open City can maybe um, help with. Like, I, I want to run public speaking courses for architects. So I, I want to like train ourselves in how to communicate with a broad general audience. Because it's hard, right? It's not hard. No one, we don't get taught particularly well in architecture school how to do it. We don't get taught very well how to do it in normal school. Um, there's people who spend their lives 
dedicated to learning how to be exceptional communicators and they go to drama schools or they go to, you know, um, it's a proper skill and we need to spend a bit more time honing that skill. Um, I think if we did, if we got better at communicating our subjects and why it's cool and why we're excited about it and why we um, spend so much of our lives on it, uh, not only would it mean that the public had a better understanding of architecture, which would be kind of nice, but it would re-empower architecture in, in a political and public space. Like the, the reason that um, you never see an architect on question time, you never see an architect on the news night, unless it's gone horribly wrong, <laughs> and they're like calling someone in to blame for the, know, the garden bridge or whatever. Um, the reason is that they're quite dark. Like it's hard. To produ TV producers are out there looking for interesting architects to stick in front of cameras, and they can't. Yeah. Well, Zaha was the last one to get any form of attention, wasn't she? She popped up on Newsnight occasionally. Uh, yeah, and she did that um, pretty great Desert Island Discs, um, in which she picked uh, <laughs> Hotline Bling as one of her favourite of all time songs. Um, I mean, she, she was like an amazing celebrity, and like her, her, her kind of the power of her character transcended um, uh, her actual skill as a public speaker. But even she was not necessarily like a brilliant communicator uh, is like in front of a lectern. She mm. um, found other ways of communicating. Um, but I just think, in, 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 in general, all of us in architecture, you know, we need to spend a month or two at Rudd. We need to get slightly better at commanding um, attention, like earning um, airtime. Yeah, well, I guess we fall into the same trap that lots of, sort of academic fields do, which is talking within this sort of little bubble in, in this weird language that only we speak, that the public does, can't really understand most of, and that equally we wouldn't understand most of the language of any, anyone else's bubble. Yeah. And that's, it's, it does take a skill to not do that. And you think that would link directly back to being a good architect and pitching to clients, because clients aren't architects and wouldn't understand most of the things you're talking about. One of the things I constantly hear complaining from some of my friends who are um, either councillors or planners is that architects constantly come in and start talking about how great their design is and what inspired them and this, this thing references that thing and it's just completely irrelevant to the, what makes their decision as to whether or not they approve a planning application, for example, um, which I think links into the, the communication point.
when we're having a heart-to-heart conversation with someone we love and trust. With strangers, and that's like we're kind of lecturing in, in kind of sort of school teaching, doing um, the Sunday assembly or whatever, the boarding school or whatever. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It can be incredibly dull sometimes. Especially, and it is, it's surprising, like you say, some of the best architects that you had up for some of the Architecture Foundation um, sort of lectures, you get these huge audiences in um, the Barbican, wherever it was that you held lots of them. And they do exactly the same thing that every other architect does, which is go in and do the slides thing and not really do a proper storytelling kind of thing. They just explain what it is that they've got in front of them. Um, Yeah, I noticed you've got the um, cycling tours coming up all over London, which I think is an excellent idea. I do envisage like uh, piles of cyclists getting blocking up roads every every two minutes when they stop. (laughs) Yeah, potentially. Well, if anything, now's a great time to be launching that kind of thing, isn't it? With loads of pop-up cycle lanes being thrown in all over the place and more and more people moving into cycling as a means of transport. So, yeah, and it's, um, 
I do think find it interesting that you're focusing on most of your tours focus on modern architecture, and to, as far as I'm aware, the most of the tour space is occupied by people like the National Trust and all the the historical stuff for which there's obviously a huge audience, probably an older audience, but still a huge audience. So could, given that architecture is a sort of multi-century thing, unlike other mediums, could that play in to the way that you sort of communicate architecture that to get across that continuity to people that, I don't know, here's a social housing scheme from 1960 and here's a social housing scheme from 1860 or something like that and to sort of to not fall into that trap of getting of staying within the sort of modern architecture obsessed architectural world and to sort of pick up on that general more public interest in things that like the National Trust focuses on and the more historical side of things yeah I think Mm. 
Well, going back to the feedback loop thing, maybe you could get people to give each building a rating out of 10 on every tour and then keep a, keep a running scoreboard as to which buildings are uh, most popular. Yeah, well, I guess that's, maybe that's something we've inherited from the other creative industries, that there's this sort of institutional idea of what good taste is and doesn't necessarily correlate with what ordinary people prefer. But I, guess, I guess your challenge from the sort of present, presenting this stuff in, in tours especially is to find people who are, have sufficient historical knowledge of a sufficiently broad range of, of buildings and their histories and things and their influences to, and are, of course, engaging tour guides. 
um, to make a great, give people a great experience of, uh, of, yeah. of London or wherever else it is. It doesn't necessarily have to just, just be London, of course. Um, and I have to ask you about climate stuff, because I know this is a particular interest of yours and indeed of all of ours these days. Um, what do you think the architectural profession needs to do to make more progress more quickly on climate-related matters to the, to the extent, whatever that is, that it can? Um, we need to do a lot of things. <laughs> Those kinds of visions, the sort of like 50s and 60s visions of the future, are very seductive. They were communicated extraordinarily well by um, uh, the sort of uh, the artists who drew pictures for the front of science fiction novels or for filmmakers. Uh, and we have an enormous amount of work to do to um, show an equally, if not more seductive, alternative that is based around. Um, living within planetary limits. Um, I think that if architects were better communicated in all senses, we would be more prepared, uh, more able to persuade policymakers or the general public or the media um, that there were uh, good, meaningful, realistic, seductive alternatives to high carbon culture. Um, so part of it is, 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 is communication. Another part of it is like taking a long hard look at ourselves in the mirror and falling out of love with some of the 
some of our aesthetic preferences and some of our um, uh, some of the kind of mantras that we use to tell ourselves what is good architecture. So um, there are certain materials that are just really high carbon, and it's very hard to build anything out of these materials that is um, that has a meaningful role to play in a low carbon economy. Which are the worst culprits? <laughs> Mm. What, an, what a privilege <laughs> to live 
something that would have been considered inconceivable even three years ago. Mm. Well, let me let me play the devil's advocate role of the uh, the big developer client who comes along and says, "I want to build a skyscraper, or I want to build a large." Uh, I don't know, great big thousand unit development and you're telling me I have to build it out of uh, hemp and straw and grass and wood. Um, how are you going to persuade that person both uh, financially and I guess in terms of their corporate response, uh, responsibility policy <laughs> that they should spend more money and therefore make less profit on their development? But, but again, is that them saying, um, we're going to go carbon neutral, but we're not going to do it by using structural timber, for example. We're going to do it by continuing to build concrete and then planting 10,000 trees in some country somewhere. Yeah, the, the real estate investment trusts, yeah, yeah like British they're land. Not, yeah. they're, not, you know, they're not Trump, they're not climate change deniers. They understand that this is real, they understand uh, they need to do something about it, they understand that the, um, the materials that they're using and the practices they're using will become illegal at some point. <laughs> So you've, put, you've persuaded, successfully persuaded all the major developers. How do you persuade the architects who've grown up idolizing their icons of Corbusier and uh, Aldo and Mies and all of, the, all of the great modernists who used glass and concrete and steel and... Yeah, this, this is, in a sense, the trickier question. It's like we, we, 
certainly been taught to love the Farnsworth house um, by Meeks. Uh, and there, there's something very sexy about these like, huge sheets of glass and this like spindly steel frame. Um, and I, I now realize that I've been a little bit brainwashed and I have to learn to unlove some of that stuff. It's a little bit like um, you've spent too much time looking at models in, in like fashion mags or something and now you've got a like slightly warped idea of what bodies look like and, and your beauty standards have been kind of um, fucked around with by the by contemporary media and you have some work to do to kind of um, like realise to yourself that some of these these glossy pinups are not actually um, what real beauty is, or what real beauty should be. Um, and the way I would try and persuade an architect to uh, maybe kind of turn their back on the Nietzschean dream, um, I think there's a number of ways you can do it. Uh, one way is to talk about truth to performance materials, because you know, we have this existing aesthetic vocabulary about truth to materials. And that seems to be very appealing to a lot of architects that like, um, they don't like that, that concealed steel lintel because it's somehow like cheating um, to uh, not use bricks in the way that bricks are meant to be used as load-bearing arches. Um, well, you could apply that same logic to the Farnsworth house and say, you know, why are these incredibly high-performance steel members being used to create this like one-story high villa. Um, this is a ridiculous abuse of truth to the performance of materials. If you're going to use a high-carbon, high-performance material like steel, fine, but like use it in a way where it's like used to its maximum capacity. Um, and I think that there, that there could be a, uh, a, a, a new aesthetic vocabulary or a new aesthetic of uh, paradigm that we build up around performance and certainly uh, insisting that high carbon materials are fine as long as they are really worth it in the um, in the building. You know, like, I'm not going to build a concrete, but we're only going to use it when it's like d doing the absolute most it can do. Um, another way to do it is simply about creativity and saying, you know, why? Why are you still kind of faffing around with this, like this Nietzschean aesthetic that was designed in a completely different ecological era? When you have the opportunity to like be your own person, stand on your own two feet, like make your own moves in the world, why um, are you so afraid of change? Why are you so uh, worried about the avant-garde? And um, that's a very persuasive narrative as well because a lot of architects really want to be avant-garde, they really like the idea of being new and cutting-edge and like, no, we've done this before, and um, uh, we have a real obsession with news. Well, maybe we could kind of channel that obsession into um, material culture and say, okay, if you, you know, prove it, you know, if you're so avant-garde, if you're so creative, if you're like nothing that ever came before, if you're not just rehashing old ideas, then, you know, show me what the future of architecture looks like. Your material power is low carbon materials, but like other than that, 
there were no constraints. No. And I, I sort of, I feel like um, uh, they're both quite seductive messages. <laughs> the, like, the truth materials thing um, and the uh, let me out on guard thing both appeal to a sense of like competitive creativity that um, we want to, as artistic practitioners, do something amazing. Um, and if we can redefine high carbon materials as not amazing or as like could do better, then people will. Um, they will move away from them on their own because they will, they will want to be seen as cool and amazing rather than like boring, trad, old hat, you know, oh, another boring concrete building, great. <laughs> well, maybe the trads will be the, uh, the people who are copying the buildings from the 20s and 30s rather than the uh, pre Victorian yeah. era and before, before that. Well, as, uh, to, to take a segue from that, could it be a symptom of education, architectural education, to any degree? And if so, wh where does the fault lie and how is it rectified? Absolutely. Uh, oh, a tiny, tiny splash. So, yeah, so to, to segue from what we were talking about into... Could it be that that's the fault lies in education, that people are being taught things in one way or another that aren't sustainable or aren't, aren't progressive enough in terms of the way that architecture needs to go to solve the issues in climate and, and general sustainability? Crits and people give crits a hard time, but ultimately crits 
leading figures in the industry come and talk to you in depth about your project one to one, and often more than one to one. Like you sort of have five people talking to one student about their work. I once um, saw a, a crit where the, the student had, had studied Kate McIntosh, the seminal postdoc housing architect, um, and she'd done this with uh, you know this was her kind of master's level fifth year project at Dawson's Heights, which is a, a, a housing estate that Kate designed when she was 26 in South London, uh, and um, the project was this, this, this very interesting kind of extrapolation of Dawson's Heights. Who turns up to crit for her? Kate McIntosh. <laughs> So this, this woman that she's been studying for her entire year comes in person to talk to her about her project. It was like, you never get, you know, yeah. studying Chomsky. Chomsky doesn't come and talk to you about Shakespeare her. turns up to analyse your uh, analysis. Death maybe is a barrier, but like, other than death, um, it's incredible how an architectural culture and architectural education has been part of our culture. We have such a rich education that involves so many different types of experiences of students. And yeah, it's tough, and yeah, there's problems with crits, and yeah, like, you know, the, 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 the wider context of British higher education stinks, and like, there's real political problems there. Um, and there's probably a lot that can be done in terms of um, uh, expanding the architectural syllabus, particularly I'm thinking around decolonization and like a, a wider sense of, um, uh, of who we're celebrating in architectural in the canon. Uh, there's certainly a lot we could do around carbon and like making sure that all students are graduating with a with a, 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 a very sophisticated knowledge of how to design in a post-carbon economy. Um, but ultimately, I think architectural education is fucking great. <laughs> I think people who bitch about it are diverting attention from the real problem, which is practice. We are not going to solve the climate emergency by training first years how to design low carbon buildings because by the time those first years have graduated, developed through their career and become practice directors uh, at the age of what, 50 or 60, it's going to be too late. Mm. So the change has to come in practice. Um, and uh, although I think there are things we can do to improve architectural education, ultimately the focus has to be. Um, yeah, well, I think I agree with that because you're right. It's the practice directors who are making the decisions day to day, isn't it? Like, no matter how sort of principled and pro, all great, amazing things you are when you graduate, if you're then doing door schedules for five years and and not making any design decisions or material decisions, yeah. you're not going to have that influence that we need directors to have, really. Really? Like everyone else wants to be a footballer or a lawyer or a pop star 
film star, whatever. Black girls want to do those things, but they also want to be architects. Like number two most popular career aspiration, right? How weird then that actually in the world of professional architecture there are no well, there are loads of black women in architecture, but like very few at the top, very few practice directors, very few um, prominent black female architects, right? Um, I would say the problem is not that it's young people that aren't interested. Young people clearly are interested. And the RBA surveys incoming students every year, and their research is also quite clear that like, if you look at the people coming into architecture school, it's extremely diverse. People coming out the other end and into part three, not so diverse. People rising up the career ladder and becoming directors or, or having that power that you're talking about that make actual decisions even less diverse. So what that tells me is that the problems are not, they're not in the undergrad. They're not like people coming in on day one. It's, it kicks in as you start doing part, part one placement, as you do your part two placement, as you, you know, go through part three. Those are the points where um, we're, we're seeing the kind of racial diversity in architecture kind of evaporate. Mm. Um, so yeah, again, it's like, yes, schools do need to do widening access stuff. Yes, they need to support people from underrepresented backgrounds more while they're in school. Um, but actually, again, practice is the, is the kind of place where I, I put the, like, the biggest burden of responsibility and I would defend architectural education in general. Okay. If we, if we don't, we're going to lose it. Yeah. Do you think the, the apprenticeship scheme um, as an alternative route has a role to play in that regard or is it sort of a, a dead end in terms of it might work for a tiny minority of people but it's not really going to have that much effect? Really? There'll be a lot of uh, pr professionals who are very interested in keeping their protected title once they've got it, gatekeeping. <laughs> I suppose you'd probably end up with just a different substitution like you have with engineers where they just call themselves chartered engineers. Yeah, that might be a sort of interim. Also, do they have protection of function in the US? Yeah, in the US, if you want to build a building above a certain size, you need an architect to sign up for it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, I didn't know that.
if all the architects in the US said we're not going to work on prisons, you wouldn't be able to build a prison. Mm. Well, that you've, you've hinted on the interesting moral dilemma, which seems to come up increasingly more often of should architects accept uh, jobs on certain types of building. Whether I think the latest one was um, Foster's new super private, uh, super luxury airport that looks like some spiky aloe vera plant or something settled in the desert.
can think of ourselves as somehow like removed from the ethical dynamics of how we uh, do or don't um, use our labor in the world. We, we are in the same melee as, as any other kind of worker, and we ought to be thinking critically about our labor. And the question of whether or not we should be taking on private airports or solitary confinement um, facilities or execution facilities, for me, is a very simple one. We shouldn't. Like, we should have the intellectual, ethical, and professional integrity to um, resist taking on those kind of jobs. And uh, I think we probably could get there, but the sort of step before we can do that is we have to sort of understand ourselves as workers, to understand that we have more power together as an organized community than we do apart as individual authors or as individual artists. And maybe that's the kind of division, that's, that's the kind of job we need to make, is, it, is, is to think of ourselves more as like a class of worker than as these kind of great stars who can you know, accomplish wonderful things mm. as individuals. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. I mean, it's I, deeper done, it's deeper done from the architecture lobby in, um, in America, trying to kind of become a kind of almost like a trading architect. He, 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 he argues that, like, as an architect, the site of your power is not your work. It's how, it's, it's the fact that you're a worker. Like, you can't really affect change through design. That's a silly aspiration. Like, maybe you can, like, do some, like, tiny little adjustments, like, make it slightly easier for neighbors to hang out, or you can, like, inch us closer to better ecological um, but really, your, your, your primary power as, a, as an individual is as an employee and as a worker and as a, a, a part of a, a, like a wider body of workers. So I'm, I'm very excited by like, the possibilities of what could be possible, <laughs> possible, about what we could do together if we worked together rather than um, uh, the sort of like, uh, contemporary situation where we Hmm. That's, that, that's interesting to hear that perspective because I've I've always thought that going the other, almost the other way is where the the influence lies. That t- almost retaking back the role of the master builder and being the the instigators of projects rather than merely consultants to developers. Because the sort of the counter argument or the, strong, the most obvious counter argument to a boycott on any particular program is that someone will do it if you don't have a protection of function then there'll always be someone who'll be willing to either sell out and do it or not not follow the boycott or even if or there'll be someone who isn't an architect who'll do it and therefore you end up with you're going to have the product the building created one way or another is it better that it's done well by an ar- a, a competent architect than by someone who's maybe a less competent architect so it's sort of an end, ends to means thing and maybe that program maybe that airport might not always be an airport for the rich and maybe one day it'll become a, a shelter for people or maybe it'll become a, a, I don't know, a sports venue or something like that so that to me is the most obvious counter argument um, and I don't know how you resolve that um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to see 
architects as workers. But do you think that's possible to have that same kind of effect uh, on the sort of, I don't know, geopolitics of things just by refusing to not design particular kinds of buildings? Yeah, enough people do that. This is what it is. It's like, you know, on my own, I have no power. I could refuse to design an airport. Who cares? (laughs) Us as a community, us as a uh, a class, a class of worker, then we have power. And... um, we're so willing to kind of, we have no sense of solidarity, this is the kind of key word. We go, we go, you know, we're not prepared to um, suffer as a community. So uh, we in, instantly go like, oh, you know, he's not going to take that airport on my way. Um, because if I don't, someone else will. Whereas uh, if we had a better sense of solidarity, we would be like, he's not taking that airport. So I won't either, because we're in this together, and like our, our, our futures and our fates as businesses, as humans, as citizens of the planet, are one fate. And um, like, if I take the job on that he won't take on, I have like stamped him in the back, and not only him, but like myself and like uh, our planet and our, our profession. Hmm. Um, well, what if to sort of carry it on? Because first of all, the thing that strikes me is I'm not sure that our profession or indeed almost any profession is sufficiently homogenous to 
sort of be one, out of one mindset on any particular issue. Um, but the other thing that you could say is maybe maybe I will take that airport on, but I'm going to persuade the client to use structural timber instead of concrete to plant loads. Of, the immediate one that comes to mind is the um, Forest Green Rovers Stadium, Zaha Timber Football Stadium. Um, I'm going to use sustainable materials. I'm going to use sustainable materials. Alberto, can you get that? Uh, I'm going to... I don't know, get, plant those trees around the site, make it really ecological, increase the biodiversity of the area, uh, which maybe were things that the client wouldn't have done otherwise. And maybe I'm going to encourage them to build and load of houses for local workers or improve their site conditions or improve, make sure they're treating the migrant workers on site within certain limits. And maybe the influence in there is if I sort of facilitate change from the inside rather than trying to do it from the outside. And that's the sort of the opposite philosophy, but I'm not sure which one is more, would be more effective. Uh, well, it's not working the moment, is it? Like, that is the argument that a lot of... Um, the, the kinds of practices in favor of massive radiation projects make, it's like by being part of the big... By being at the table, we're able to nudge it in a, in a more ethical or ecological direction. But like, we're still... <laughs> the game is backwards. And I just feel like the if we think of ourselves as truly creative people, then we have to embrace constraints and see them not as things that hold us back, but the things that define our creativity. Mm. And that it's so much more interesting to work within constraints than without them. And um, one of those constraints is clearly that for the time being, 
they want to figure out how to make a carbon, a low carbon plane, and therefore we really oughtn't to have anything to do with enabling high carbon aviation. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Let's, let's, if we think we're creative people, let's use that creativity well. You know, it's the whole, whole Spider Man thing. Like, <laughs> with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine a Foster and Partners Barrett Holmes estate now. <laughs> yeah, why why is it Foster and Partners do it Barrett doing Barrett Holmes estates? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the argument for protection of function, isn't it? Which I, I <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence. Um, I'll do another 10 minutes, if that's right. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is architecture and water. Not least because, am I right in thinking you live on a canal boat? Uh, I own a canal boat, which at the moment has a Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and this is, I guess, going from the global to the local, especially in London. It's always struck me how disconnected London is from its waterways, especially the Thames. Um, I mean, I'm a kayaker and canoeist. I spend a lot of time on rivers and canals and stuff. Um, how do you think London can reconnect better with its waterways and especially with the Thames? One is clearly to do with uh, perception. People could 
Well, as someone who's got an ill from drinking too much Thames water quite regularly, I, I would perhaps put a slight caveat on that. We need a democratically, democratically elected mayor of the Thames. It's kind of surprising that it's not part of the GLA, isn't it? And doesn't come under the mayoral uh, authority. I always think of this, the way that Parisians interact with the Seine. And it's not really a fair comparison considering the Thames is between two and three times wider than the Seine as it runs through Paris. So it's well, in, it's in places, yeah. Um, 
and but they you like it's very noticeable that they all go down like with a picnic hamper or, or a plastic bag full of alcohol and sit and chat and there's benches and they can walk along and there's loads of access points and it's not muddy and smelly and covered in seagulls and <laughs> and rotting boats and things <laughs> Battersea. <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. <laughs> There's not much to visit, really, is there? That's the trouble. Yeah. Well, maybe we need a send style uh, sort of lower platform level that runs the entire length on both banks. Yeah, and people love sitting next to the river for bars and pubs and things, don't they? Like, uh, on some parts of the Seine, they have the little dance areas and little sort of, I don't know, like trailers that's selling drinks and stuff, and, and you can go out and you can sit or you can, yeah, just go and enjoy it. 
even though like you say you're not actually in the river yeah. you're not swimming in it or paddling in it but yeah well i think that covers a sufficient range of topics <laughs> I think you did. And I look forward to seeing what Open House and Open City do in the coming months and years. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come to Open House in um, September. I think it's going to be a very different kind of festival to previous years. Um, has to evolve, but I think there's going to be a whole load of cool stuff using kind of traditional formats, opening up buildings and spaces and How much is that going to cost? Because it's a bugbear, bear of mine how expensive architecture books are. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's distinctly affordable. So that's... Uh... It is a bugbear. I know. I know. No, it's, it's, it particularly annoys me how expensive architecture books are. Um, but yeah, teeth and cheerful. So where can people find info on open house and all of that kind of thing? Well, I think £12 is, um, is incredibly reasonable, so I would encourage everybody to go out and buy a copy of the book or pre-order a copy of the book. Uh, Phineas Harper, thank you very much. <laughs>